Stay hungry, stay foolish. If we depend on market research to dictate business decisions, today's guest explains how this is a big mistake. Market research cannot predict customers' buying decisions because it focuses on the conscious mind, our logical thinking process. As consumers, we rarely make buying decisions logically, even when we insist we do. Like most of our daily decisions in life and in business, we make them unconsciously. The other side is that with risk aversion taking an increasing grip on corporate boardrooms, it's no surprise that marketing professionals increasingly reach for the crutch of market research to support their proposals. When products and marketing campaigns fail, they blame the research. While this episode is invaluable for business owners of all sizes and marketers, it will equally help us understand any customer better, but also understand our own behaviors better. We welcome consumer behavior expert with clients such as Diageo, John Lewis, and Domino's Pizza, and author of the bestseller, Consumerology, Philip Graves. Welcome to the show, Philip. Nice to be with you, Aidan. It's great to have you on the show. And before we start, it'd be great to understand your background and hear a bit about you and your current focus. My background was originally, I was a statistician. That was my degree. That took me into market research. And I became increasingly curious as to why market research was so often wrong. Uh, and that sent me on a journey of wanting to understand people better. I started studying psychoanalysis, uh, initially transactional analysis, transactional analysis um, and then further into psychology and behavioral psychology. Um, and that ended up with me, in a sense, throwing myself the question of where's the evidence that asking people questions is a good way to understand them. And it was doing the research into that that led to the book Consumerology. And to cut a long story short, and possibly to save anyone buying it, I couldn't find much. Most of the evidence points to the fact that we're really poor witnesses to our own behavior. And that doesn't just um, in, extend to us being able to predict our own actions. It's actually our, our ability to explain our own actions. And that puts us into a really interesting position when we're relying on people's ability to understand themselves when we ask them questions and accept the answers that they give us. It's so reminiscent of the Henry Ford quote, which is famous now, and I'm sure you're tired of hearing it, but for the audience, if I had asked people what they wanted, they would have said faster horses. When you talk about throughout the book, focus groups, for example, people are asked in alien conditions, would they buy a product? totally devoid of the environment in which they should be or which in which they would be acting if they were buying something, just as an example. But what I'd love to start with is this misconception of how people buy, which is with their logical mind, with their conscious mind. But in fact, we act always with this unconscious mind. It'd be great to get an understanding of that, Philip. Well, absolutely. I mean, we, we've learned in the last 30, 40 years through uh, the work that's come out uh, in behavioral economics really shined a light on it, although there were some fairly big clues before that in little pieces of research, that what we learn from behavioral psychology experiments is if you change something and you see a change in behavior and then you ask people why they've done the thing that they've done, they don't correctly identify the fact that you've changed a smell or background music or a um, uh, 
a, a sound or a lighting or some other contextual variable. And what we've started to see is that we have this unconscious mind, which is a fantastic supercomputer of a brain that can work incredibly quickly. It can react. It's a byproduct of evolution. It's got us an awful long way, um, but we don't have any direct connection to it. Um, and our conscious mind, which is the part that we're aware of when we're using it, because we're aware of it, we think we use it a lot more than we do. And as a result of that, we're very poor witnesses to our own actions and we're not very well placed, we know from all the behavioral psychology work, um, to understand why we've acted in, in the way we have. And let's bring that to life up. So I walk into a store and I'm about to buy something. I don't take out a calculator or a notebook and start taking notes and comparing calories and prices, et cetera, et cetera. I make those decisions in an instant because my brain is interested in efficiency. So therefore that's how I act. Absolutely. You know, we operate on a fairly simple ease reward trade-off. Now, sure, if there is something out there that is fantastically rewarding potentially, um, then we may invest a huge amount of effort into it and along the way get sufficient little rewards to keep us going at it. But that's not most of our lives. Most of our lives are characterized by um, actions and decisions where we invest as little uh, cognitive effort as we possibly can because, frankly, the rewards are not that great when you're buying your supermarket goods. Um, you know, it's not going to change your life. You unconsciously recognize that. You want to get the process over with quickly and make some quick, fast, but generally pretty good decisions. And evolution has has got us to a point where we're we're really rather good at that. It does sometimes expose us to uh, to looking a bit foolish because it's not rational, but it, the, the real foolishness comes when we superimpose rationality onto those behaviors and completely confuse ourselves as to why people are doing things. And then you talk about some of your clients, for example, a client that asked people afterwards why they didn't buy a certain product. But of course, they can't articulate why they didn't buy it. Well, they can articulate why they didn't buy, but they don't do it accurately. So what we're brilliant at as human beings is working by association and post-rationalizing our actions. You know, we're storytelling apes. So 99% of the time, if you ask someone a question, they'll give you an answer. Now, the, the challenge is, is that answer true? And in that particular situation, you were asking, they were asking people about the absence of a behavior, which is always a really dodgy question from the point of view of psychological validity, because sometimes it involves not even thinking of doing the thing concerned. But people don't say um, what they really meant, which in this case was probably you didn't influence me enough as a store to make me want to buy something, because that's not how we see ourselves. We see ourselves as conscious agents. So instead, people said uh, in, a, in a sort of reactive way, oh, well, you didn't have what I wanted. But then when we posed the question uh, to people going into the store, why, uh, what are you coming to buy? We found out the vast majority of people didn't know what they were going to buy. And so the conclusion was, you know, they were going in with some vague sense that they might want something. And what, what was important was whether or not they were influenced through that journey to feel that something was worth buying. But again, we then get into lots of studies that show us that, you know, the way we make those sorts of decisions is not particularly rational and we're influenced by things like price framing and loss aversion and things that people say to us, salespeople say to us and so on. And we'll look at some of those later because you talk about us needing to 
take all the burden ourselves as sellers, I suppose. So the burden isn't with the consumer to actually have to go and make the decision that we have to actually guide them there. And we'll, we'll come back to that. But there's a great line you say in the book, consumer research has been allowed to creep in as a substitute for entrepreneurial judgment. And I thought this was really key. And you asked me off air about how we can look at this from an entrepreneurial or through an entrepreneurial lens or an innovation lens. And one of those things is our gut feeling. And you talk about that being a skill that we can actually hone in a way. And you talk about it being a bridge that we can gradually build over time. I'd love to hear a little bit about that, Philip. Well, absolutely. And I think it. what's happened is that as businesses grow, they become more and more risk averse, which I understand. And what they have been sold is the idea that asking people questions is some sort of clairvoyant-like tool to see into the future with accuracy. Now, when you step back from the idea that if you ask people what they think, it will guide guide you accurately in the future and think about, well, all the other things that purport to be able to see into the future, you very quickly come up with a very short list of, you know, future seeing things, teabags, astrology, uh, you know, even econometric models. None of these things are infallible. When it comes to making decisions about doing something new, I think it's important that businesses have clarity about what they can understand from consumers and what they can't and where they need to make decisions and what they can do to make sure those decisions are as robust as possible. So there is a sweet spot for consumer insight, which is something that has just happened. And if you can understand someone's behavior, someone's current behavior, and if you can decode the psychology around that behavior, and that's what most of my work involves, then it doesn't tell you what you should do differently. And consumers certainly can't tell you what you should change if you want them to buy more or buy differently or shop from you, shop with you more often or whatever it is. Um, but you have the best understanding from which to build a bridge into the future. And that bridge building uh, metaphor that I use is, it, you know, it, it's because what you're now doing is a creative process and no one's going to tell you whether that bridge is the right bridge until you've built it and people uh, are going across it and you see whether people are going across it. So if you want to know whether you're putting that bridge in the right place, the sensible thing to do is to build a bridge as quickly as possible and see whether or not people start to use it. So I'm talking about, you know, live trials, uh, randomized control trials, uh, quick experiments, test and learn, uh, you know, fail fast, those sorts of methodologies. And, and unfortunately, market research gives organizations a false sense of um, security about decisions that they're taking. Uh, and the weirdest thing about it is that even within the organizations that use it, they've got lots of examples in their own corporate history of it letting them down. And yet they go back to the same approach, scratch their heads and say, oh, well, we'll try again. And they use exactly the same process. And what I've tried to draw attention to through my work is that that process is fundamentally flawed. Um, and there are much better ones out there, um, but they do require you to think differently about the challenges you face. Yeah, and I love the way you brought it back to that kind of lean startup mentality or agile development where you get it out there because when you have something in the market, you can measure it because it's behavioral versus declared data. And I'd, I'd love to talk about this because you alluded to it, asking the customer. And most research is done with focus groups, asking people in unrealistic environments 
questions about a product they don't even know exist yet. And of course, they're going to be excited. And taking that in isolation versus standing in front of a supermarket shelf with a screaming child in a trolley is a very, very different thing. Absolutely. I mean, what if you were going to summarize all everything we've learned from behavioral psychology over the last 50 years, um, what you would set, what you would bring it back to is that context really matters. And how, because the unconscious mind is processing so much inf- information without us being aware, a lot of that is contextual information, what's around the thing that we're looking at. And, you know, the, the, the great irony with focus groups is that, well, firstly, they emerged from groups in psychotherapy, which were created specifically because they change behavior. Uh, and the, they were then sort of borrowed by people in marketing who thought they were a good idea. Um, and in fact, if you analyze all the things that go on in a focus group, um, particularly in a viewing facility, but even outside of a viewing facility, you have put together the perfect recipe for getting meaningless information. You know, the context wrong. You've got the influence of um, people's desire to socially interact with strangers, which causes us to behave in particular ways, some of which is predictable, some of which isn't. You've got the random priming that takes place from what one person says when people, when the first question is answered and people are sitting there, they haven't thought about the thing that's um, that's being discussed usually. So the easiest thing to do unconsciously is to start your mental journey to an answer from the first thing you've heard. And, and you know, and you can, and I, I do in the book, go through this this trail of uh, biases and corruptions that exist. And and really there is no worse way to understand people than by asking them questions in a focus group. Um, And and even though lots of organizations will tell you not unfairly because of regulatory and compliance issues or um, uh, technology issues or infrastructure issues that they can't run trials and they cannot develop things quickly, that still leaves a space where you can design experiments that might not be completely live, complete live trials, but you design proxies for the real world that draw in as much of what we know from a psychological perspective matters to the decisions that people make so that it's not going to be perfect, but at least you're creating something with some psychological validity. And all too often, unfortunately, you know, we see that what people, what organizations do is they go for what's quick, what's cheap, what's easy, what will come back with an answer. And in fact, disturbingly, I was reading an article this week um, in the British Psychological Society's journal that was that's highlighted, someone's done some research and highlighted that a lot of psychologists now, most psychological studies are computer-based and involve people answering questions um, and mouse clicks rather than the study of behavior. And you know, as I've identified and people before me have identified, what what really matters is what people do, how they behave. They're not well-placed to judge that. And the further we get away from uh, gauging behavioral reactions, removing a lot of the biases that come into uh, any sort of interrogative research process, we've got to be much more mindful about how people think before we jump into thinking we're finding out what they think. And it'd be great, Philip, to talk about some of those biases because that dictates everything. I mean, I've witnessed focus groups where the person asking the question had a bias for the product. So therefore, they ask leading questions to confirm the bias they have. 
And it'd be great to understand some of those biases for our audience. Well, yeah, I mean, that, that if you like, is a very um, literal, pure form of bias. But most of the biases that exist that I'm referring to are um, biases that have been identified in behavioral economics. And they're not, it's a bit of an unhelpful term that behavioral economists use because uh, the word bias has a certain kind of uh, pejorative overtones. It sounds like a negative, bad thing. And in fact, you know, it's really just a description of, uh, of a bias from the rational. Um, and so what we see is that, you know, if people don't have a strong feeling about something, if they don't have a strong belief, then what they say will be very he- heavily influenced by the way the question is asked, um, how the information is framed. Um, you know, Kahneman and Tversky did lots of great experiments on this. And, and, what we have to appreciate is that in most cases, the things that we're asking consumers about are not things that they have deep beliefs about and they care profoundly about. And so the way we're asking questions, the fact we're asking questions at all, you know, as soon as I say to you, um, you know, if we're doing some work on healthy eating, uh, you know, I might start our discussion by saying, okay, well, I'm here to talk to you, you know, we're here to talk about healthy eating. Um, what sorts of things do you do to eat healthily? Well, I'm now directing your focus at a particular concept that may not enter your head when you're buying food. When you're buying food, you might very well be focused on what's tasty. And yeah, if someone prompts you to think about healthiness, of course, that will fire off some associations and you know that you shouldn't eat too much red meat and you shouldn't drink too much. And, uh, you know, perhaps you shouldn't have too much sugar or fat, depending on, you know, what Daily Mail article you've read that week. Um, but the fact remains that, you know, the presumption and the, um, the direction of focus that takes place by me asking a question about it has already corrupted your mind. And, and that's the sort of thing that, that, you know, we're dealing with when we investigate issues for clients. And for example, you know, we'll have clients say, okay, well, can I see the questions you're going to ask? And I say, no, because we don't have any questions we're going to ask. The only thing we're going to do initially is uh, relive someone's behavioral, recent behavioral experience. And where that goes is entirely down to their experience. As soon as we start asking questions that matter to you, um, we'll corrupt that experience and we'll be influencing it. You talk about why asking questions is fruitless and you give us a list of reasons for that. It'd be great to get an understanding of those overlaid on top of the biases. There are so many ways in which asking questions are problematic. I mean, the example I've just given, which is that you're you're framing the issue around what matters to you and what you want to understand, which may have nothing to do with uh, the way that any individual consumer approaches that particular decision in their life. And in the most extreme situations, um, you know, and you can, you can gauge this from behavioral observation, someone might walk down a supermarket aisle and pick up a product in half a second and drop it into their basket and keep walking. Well, in that situation, it's happened too quickly for them to have had any conscious thoughts about what they've just done. Uh, they may not even be completely mindful of what they've just done. And yet, ironically, in certain circumstances, companies will want to talk to that person for an hour about that product interaction they've just had and their relationship with that product. And again, what we know from um, uh, some neurological studies that have been done is actually what's characterized that brand relationship 
is the, the absence of someone having to think about it. And so unless we understand the nature of someone's consumer behavior, we, we can't begin to know what's important and what we should ask them. And, you know, there was a great example with uh, the Financial Conduct Authority when they were looking at uh, add-on insurance. Um, for So, you know, you go and buy a computer and they say, well, do you want to buy this insurance to go with it? And they, they did a survey where they asked people who'd bought these add-on insurance products, which they were concerned were poor value for money, um, and, and asked them why they bought them. And the things that people said were, well, I, I thought what I was buying was a fair product. I thought it was a fair price. You know, I, I was satisfied. I didn't think I'd find anything better. I thought all the products would be the same. And basically, 99% of people were saying, I bought it because I'm not an idiot. But when their behavioral economics team conducted experiments where they varied how hard it was to look at alternative products, they found that if people had to go to the simple extra stage of clicking on one more tab on a website, about 65% of them just bought the first product that was offered. Whereas if you put those alternative products on the same page as the product where they were the original product they were buying the insurance for, only about 17% of people would pick the first product. So when when it was as easy as it could be to make a comparison, people didn't buy the product that essentially in the survey they were saying, well, I bought it because I thought it was a good product. And it's a great example of how, you know, we're influenced by context, we're influenced by what's going on at the time, we're influenced by the framing of the original price to the price of the small add-on extra uh, and our feelings and, and emotions at the time. And, you know, the idea that we can put together a list of questions that will elicit any kind of objectivity about these things that are going on that people are not aware of it is, you know, it's, it's understandably, um, you know, it's wishful thinking. And as so, as so much silly stuff that humans have done through the years is, can be characterized by, well, you know, wouldn't it be great if this was true? So we'll subscribe to the idea that it is. But, you know, can I find any evidence for it? I can't. Yeah, but it really tees up nicely because choice it can be problematic. But there's a killer line I think you have in the book. And I think it, it shows why brands need to look at their brand holistically now from marketing, et cetera, and out of their silos, because you say the greatest success a brand can achieve is to be selected without conscious thought. And I thought that was a brilliant line because that means that everything's aligned purpose. They've done proper research using your effect model that we'll talk about in a little while, but they've married every little element together to become this brand that's bought or selected without conscious thought. Well, absolutely. And one of the things that I, I highlighted um, in a paper that I wrote for Oracle um, was that the notion within marketing that there is something called brand loyalty is, is complete fabrication. There is no loyalty in brands. In psychological terms, loyalty exists. It's a trait in humans, and it comes with the tempering force of guilt. So if you act in a way that is disloyal to the people around you, you will feel guilty. because, And that's a mechanism which has helped protect us as a social creature, uh, you know, which has in turn protected us because we're better in groups than we are individually through our evolutionary past. Um, but if you go and buy a different brand of socks from a different store, you don't feel guilty about it. And the important thing about that is that, you know, brands can spend a huge amount of time and effort trying to make their products 
you know, really loved building these sort of deep, rich associations. And in some cases, that might be the right thing to do. But in many cases, um, they're pursuing the wrong goal. And if they end up doing things which make the customer experience more laborious because they're trying to, you know, convey these deeper, richer um, feelings, uh, they may very well be uh, working against their end goal of growing their their business. And, you know, I came to the conclusion, actually, what matters is stickiness, which is a behavioral measure. Um, you know, are you getting people to come back to you? Are they doing so with as little thought as possible? Um, it, in which case, you're, you're probably going down the right route and you should be doing more and more things to increase that stickiness. And a great example of that is Amazon. You know, Amazon work really hard behind the scenes um, to remove the friction in making a purchase, you know, so you you get one click ordering, you get uh, you know next day delivery, you get Amazon Prime, um, all of those things. Essentially, what they're doing are not necessarily making you love Amazon, but they're making you at an unconscious level think well, the easiest way for me to get this thing I want will be to go to Amazon. And that's what we do. Are they the cheapest? Very often not. But do we bother, even though it's only opening one more browser window to go and search more widely, do we do that? Well, evidently not that much. Um, you know, and, and that's how Amazon is being really successful at, at, at growing its, uh, its share of the market. I'm delighted you brought up an example like that because you give brilliant examples in the book. And, and two, I honed in on where the new Coke example as a kind of a failure. And then the one where they ignored the research, the consumer research, which is Red Bull. Yep, absolutely. And, you know, and the, the fascinating thing about the new Coke story is that Coca-Cola don't appear to have learned anything from it. And that says a lot about corporate memory and the way that, uh, and the psychology of people within organizations. Because, of course, anytime anyone uh, initiates any activity, they have a huge um, need and desire to present it in a favorable light rather than to be objective about their failures. Um, and by the time the dust has settled, um, you know, no one has really learned the the lessons that were there to be learned about what took place. And New Coke was a great example. You know, they had created a better liquid. It was preferred by consumers when they did blind taste tests uh, over their main rival Pepsi. Um, but what they hadn't factored in was that uh, well, nobody buys a drink um, without it being in a container. And that the container it's in, the Coke can in this case, you know, carried with it lots of associations and those associations to do with childhood and happiness and pleasure, many of which they'd built there, they'd built themselves through advertising. Um, and that to suddenly change that was triggering this significant loss aversion that I can no longer get the thing that I've been buying for 20 years, 30 years, 40 years. Uh, you know, and so the psychology of what was going on was much, much more important than uh, anything to do with the, the the nature of the liquid. And that leads us into Red Bull, which is another great example. When they did the taste tests on Red Bull, they kind of came back and said, yeah, I don't think we've ever had a product that's performed this poorly. And the suggestion, suggestion that you're giving people that, well, you know, it, it kind of gives you energy and gives you wings. It's not enough to offset their concern about the fact that it tastes revolting. <laughs> um, but the way that that product was launched, uh, you know, it was seeded through clubs, 
People were drinking it when they were tired. They were then getting a dose of sugar and caffeine. Ironically, about the same as you get if you had a Starbucks coffee and a muffin, but then you would feel relaxed. But in the context of a nightclub uh, and having your Red Bull there, sure, that sugar kick and that caffeine is going to give you an energy boost. And then they did a brilliant job of ruthlessly associating their brand with adrenaline to the point where they've done experiments now. And if you just expose someone to the brand, they get an energy boost. Uh, you know, in, in terms of a placebo effect, energy boost, it does stimulate them. The brand itself is doing some of that job. It's amazing, isn't it? Because you talk about this where the environment provides context for buying decisions, which is confirmed by an example like the Red Bull brand. Well, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, it's it, and it was a way that they very cleverly created the associations um, for their product and, uh, you know, were able to very congruently deliver on what they were, uh, what they were claiming, um, because it was the perfect context in which people could experience that. And then what they were getting from it. And, you know, we, there's some evidence to show that as human beings, you know, we will be, we will acquire a taste for product for a product if it is giving us something that we need. So there's, uh, there's a theory that um, olives, for example, which, you know, most people, when they try an olive for the first time, are not thinking, well, that's the most delicious thing ever. <laughs> sort of thinking, that's a bit weird. Um, and then you Wash it down with some Red Bull. <laughs> then you'd be saying, a double whammy. Yeah. And you'd be saying, well, yeah, well, you know, if you eat something and it's not that pleasant, why would you eat it again? But there is a theory that actually um, olives have an anti-inflammatory quality to them. And so at an unconscious level, we find ourselves wanting something we're getting from the, uh, from the olive, despite the fact that at a conscious level, we're not thinking this is the tastiest thing ever. And in a similar way, you can look at what happened with Red Bull. You know, people were flagging, they got this product. Was it the best tasting thing ever? No. But did it keep the night going? Did it energize them? Um, did it give them that buzz? Yes, it did. And, and they acquired a taste for it. There was one you talked about in the book, which is an unusual one, but one that many brands will be looking at because they're being disrupted at the moment. And, you know, when a brand is at that top of the S-curve growth stage, it starts looking at, oh, we need to change the brand. We need to look at our refreshing it, et cetera. And one you talk about was the post office totally rebranding itself as Consignia. Yes. And, you know, it's easy for, for companies to uh, spend a huge amount of time and effort and money looking at a, a particular problem or trying to solve a particular problem, but they're looking at it through their own lens and the availability bias of the things that they're dealing with on a day-to-day -day basis. Um, they're not seeing it from a consumer perspective. And from a consumer perspective, if you have an experience with a brand, then that fills up way more, um, that, trigger, that creates way more associations. It fills up way more of your memory, if you like, um, than something superficial like what it's caused. So, you know, essentially what you're doing uh, when you rebrand something is, unless you're very clever about how you're doing it, how you do it, you're a bit like someone who's always been very boring at work and then suddenly one day decides to come in in a polka dot bow tie um, and look like they are, you know, start pretending like they're the, the most fun person in the world. Where everyone's thinking, well, no, I know what you're really like because you were here yesterday and I spent a lot of time with you. You're just the same person who's put on a different tie. Um, and, uh, you know, the, the, 
the things when you're asking people in an artificial context, you know, and you're getting them to make comparisons between things that they would never normally compare in a research setting can lead you to feel that what you're doing is making a, a sensible change. Whereas in fact, you've just created some confusion and some, some muddling. I mentioned this at the start that often it's a crutch, but sometimes it reminds me of consultancies, for example. So somebody's working on a strategy for their business and they hire the consultancy to really tell them back, you know, in, in a document what they told the consultancy. And and oftentimes I call it like an insurance strategy because they're they're insuring themselves against should it go wrong. And oftentimes we see the same in consumer research that people are doing the work so they can blame the research should it fail. I actually view that slightly differently because I think if they if they were really prepared to blame the research or blame the consultancy firm, there would not be the huge institutional research firms and huge institutional consultancy firms that we encounter on a daily basis in business. I think instead what's happening is that they are spending money and thinking, you know, if they go to a big consultancy firm, this is a £100,000 answer. So it must be true. And it's in the same way they go and do a big piece of quant research. You know, they ask 2,000 people up and down the country and they come back with a number like 74%. The way they go, well, you know, we've asked a lot of people, we've spent £50,000. So this must be true. And they are misattributing the expenditure with the value of the information. And that's creating a sort of placebo effect, which sometimes, you know, sometimes it will be right by accident. Sometimes uh, the advice will be good. Um, and oftentimes it'll be ambiguous and sometimes it'll be completely wrong. And I find found no, had no trouble finding lots of examples when research was completely wrong for the book. Um, and the interesting thing is that organizations don't learn from that. Because if they did, they would reevaluate the processes and saying, well, is our failure rate with research or with management consultancies acceptable? But there is a bias within organizations not, not to ask that question because the answer is not one anyone wants to confront. It reminds me of the emperor's new clothes. Nobody's willing to call it out. But um, it, it brings us to this one because you talk about this as well, that you, you and I think this is really important to say, you don't condemn the spend on this research. You just... You, you just highlight the fact that it's actually the research is done in a wrong way and that money can be redirected and which brings me to your model the effect model and i'd love to share that framework a little bit with our audience yeah absolutely and, and you know one of the conclusions that i reached when i started looking at you know why is it the research doesn't work very well what's going on how do people think and, and what does that tell us about you know, how we should be designing research if we want to get more psychologically valid answers. And I, and I identified five things, so, uh, which are covered by this acronym of EFFECT with one F. So the first thing is, uh, is it an analysis of behavior? And all too often, organizations are sitting on good quality behavioral data, which sure, absolutely doesn't tell them why something happened, but knowing that something did happen for a fact is really, really helpful as a place to start. So it doesn't get you all the way there, but if you know that what, you're, what you've obtained is a behavioral response, an analysis of behavior, then that's a good sign. The next thing is, what's the frame of mind that somebody was in? Um, if they were in a frame of mind that was realistic for the consumption uh, issue or the service issue or whatever it might be, then they are more like you're more likely to be getting 
an accurate response than if they're in a frame of mind which is a consequence of oh you've been invited to sit in a room with seven strangers and be asked some questions by someone who speaks at you in a nice bouncy voice and seems really interested in what you have to say (laughs) Um, which is the kind of the default style for most qualitative researchers Um, and ironically is identified within transactional analysis as a as a form of behavior that elicits a certain kind of response which is (laughs) <laughs> which is which is positive, uh, leading ways. the witness, Mr. Graves. Well, absolutely, it's known as the please you behaviour, and researchers aren't doing it because they're trying to get a positive response. They're doing it because they want any response, and they mis they confuse uh, the amount of response they get with something meaningful. Um, so, what frame of mind are people in? Environment is the environment present. So, I've mentioned already that context is really important, and if what you've done to to get this understanding the data that you're looking at or if you're designing research if you've stripped away all of that context you've stripped away a huge amount that the the mind will be referencing when it's making a decision so is that there or isn't it um, if it is then again it's a tick in the box it's a positive sign uh, which gets us to c which is covert is the focus of the research covert do the people who are taking part in it know what it's all about or are they not aware? Ideally, they're not aware they're involved in research. That's not always possible. But if they are involved in research, it, there's no real reason why they need to know exactly what it's about. And in fact, um, I have a, a battle when I'm working in certain industries, like the pharmaceutical industry, where they have so many rules and regulations about how they should be doing conducting research because of their responsibilities around adverse events with drugs that actually they completely corrupt the research process before they begin. So, you know, the, the the rules that exist are not fit for purpose, but no one's brave enough to challenge them. And then lastly, what's the time frame in which the response has been obtained? So to go back to the example I used earlier, if you know someone is essentially grabbing a product in a fraction of a second, um, if the answer you're looking at is something that's come about through an hour of introspection and analysis um, in a conversation or a 10-minute questionnaire, um, you, you should start to be concerned that that doesn't really reflect what was going on in that uh, super quick moment of purchase. And then, in fact, you're looking in the wrong part of someone's brain. So the more of those five criteria that you can uh, say are positive, you know, yes, it's analysis of behavior. Yes, the frame of mind someone was in um, is the realistic frame of mind. The environment is present. Uh, the focus of the research is covert and the time frame in which someone makes a decision is realistic. The, the better place you are to believe the research. Now, there's one caveat on that. Sometimes when people see that list, they say, well, an accompanied shop is the perfect research tool, isn't it? Which the answer is no, an accompanied shop is an awful research tool because Uh, At the moment when you say to someone, right, I'm just going to go shopping with you, do what you normally do, the one thing you can be sure of is that they will become self-conscious and not do what they (laughs) normally do. Um, So, you know, because the frame of mind is not the same. So, you know, it requires an understanding of human psychology to apply that effect model. But when you do, it gives you the reassurance, you know, um, I've got this research in front of me, we're about to make a big decision, should I trust it? Well, in 90% of cases, you'll get no's to almost all of those five criteria. And you should be saying, as an organizational leader, we should not trust this. Um, and if you're designing research, you're not always going to be able to have all of them there. If you, You'll see if you have a randomized controlled trial, a live randomized controlled trial, you can say yes to all of those things. 
it's it's a great piece of insight. It's likely to be valid. You will learn a lot from it. Not always practical to do, but between the two and the two extremes, you know, there are ways of saying, let's design some research that is as good as we can get it. And at the same time, be mindful of its limitations. And, you know, even for everything I know about research, when I'm working with companies, I am completely clear with them from the outset about how much um, psychological validity we're able to get on a particular project. And so, you know, there comes a point where you will be needing to make a decision um, because the research can only take us so far. There's one that I'd lost over, which is social proof and that we are tribal beings. And, and it's funny, actually, I had this experience recently. We recently discovered Bill Gates listened to the show or listens and he shared something. And the numbers for the show went through the roof when that happened. And it proved to me and re- when I read this in the book that we look for social proof. It re- reminded me of when I was in my t- late teens, early 20s, looking for nightclubs and you'd see a big queue outside a nightclub and you'd go and you'd go through the queue and then you'd get in and there'd be nobody inside. And I was like, when I read this, I was like, I've been duped. I fell for this social proof fallacy. Well, absolutely. And, you know, a cynical mind could question whether or not a company like Apple actually needs to um, create an environment where there are queues going around the block for their new products when they first come out or whether, in fact, they could get their production aligned so that there's plenty for everyone and everyone buys them online through their Apple devices. Um, but of course, it, it sends a very healthy signal, which is that this is something desirable. And as much as we like the idea that we're our own people and that we're not influenced by what other people do, there is evidence all around us that we are constantly referencing what people like us do. And we are very malleable um, when we when we get that information. Um, it can have a huge effect on the on the choices we make, and you know, even with things like fashion, you know, the, you don't have to be someone who subscribes to Vogue to go to your wardrobe one day, pick an item out, and look at it and think, yeah, it just doesn't feel right. You know, this color, I'm not sure. You know, mm, yeah, it doesn't feel right. I'm not going to wear it. There's nothing wrong with it functionally as an item of clothing, but you just have an unconsciously managed sense that this isn't quite what what people are wearing now, you know, and I'm old enough to have been through, um, you know, the, the sort of phases when trousers were quite loose cut and there was some room to, to breathe in them to a point now where if you buy a pair of trousers, you know, uh, they're not quite spray them on, but, but they're pretty close fitting. I had a picture, um, a picture of you in MC, MC hammer pants there, man. They, they were coffee. I won't have a word said against them. Um, yeah, and and you know, and, and things like I had a I had inherited a watch from my grandfather. My grandfather fought in the Second World War. He escaped from a prisoner of war camp in Italy. You know, he was a heroic figure. He was a heroic figure to me. Um, but I wouldn't wear his watch on a regular basis because it's a very slim. Uh, relatively small-faced watch. And instead, you know, I have a big chunky watch and that feels right, you know, and and that's really bizarre because, you know, you'd think, well, something small and elegant and where the, you know, the engineering to create it is uh, that bit more uh, precise perhaps because it's in a smaller case. Um, you know, there's nothing rational about that, but it just doesn't feel like an attractive watch to me because of watch fashion. And we've been through a period over the last 
20, 10 years perhaps, you know, where watches have been turning into things that are, are the size of small motor vehicles and we, you know, <laughs> look around on our wrist. Um, but we're very sure that everyone can see them and, uh, and it endorses our sense of status. Well, it's, it's been brilliant talking to you, Philip. And, you know, there's so much more in the book and it's, it's recently been updated as well, if I'm correct. Uh, yes, there was a, a second edition when um, I, I got the chance to do a little question and answer with myself and uh, and draw attention. One of the things that amazed me when when the book came out, there was quite a lot of controversy from the industry, as you might expect, that I was suggesting that you know there, there was a multi-billion pound industry around the world that was essentially um, you know peddling nonsense. <laughs> um, and I kept waiting for someone to come and present me with some evidence that what they did worked. No one ever did. What One organization, one big polling organization who I called out specifically on a particular survey where two surveys were conducted and the results they got were 60 percentage points apart on the key issue um, and both claimed that their answer was, you know, was meaningful, um, said, oh no, we really have improved quite a lot. We'd like you to come and see what we do now. And I thought, well, that, that's not evidence. I'm not going to come and endorse your approach um you know you you need to find better ways of doing things and unfortunately what's happening a little bit within the research industry is that you're seeing organizations lean on behavioral economics and lean on behavioral psychology without really having the understanding they need and also in part because they have a vested interest in protecting the huge divisions within their organization that are peddling these products that you know are mostly responsible for uh, for their turnover and profit uh, so it, it's it's slow to change but uh, but there are changes happening and I said when the book came out in 2010 that I thought that within 30 years we would be deeply embarrassed about most of the way in which uh, that we we conduct research within within business, and I'm not changing my time horizons just yet. Yeah, brilliant, and it's great that some people are starting to change, or at least question the way things are done. And business has been disrupted all the time, and we need to examine every aspect of why that's happening. Absolutely, and yeah, you know, I'm very fortunate to work with some companies who are. Um, at the the forward edge of making these changes and and candidly embracing the discomfort that comes with um you know giving up what you've what you've done you know what's familiar um that's tough to do you know we we know about the status quo bias it's, it exists for a reason we know we're comfortable it no one's fired us for doing things the way we've been doing them but of course there are there is a, a need increasingly to get a competitive advantage and one of the biggest competitive advantages you can get as an organization is to get better insight um and as i say i'm fortunate enough to work with some companies who uh, who have recognized the limitations of things that they've been doing to now doing up to now and um and you know those companies are um uh, currently doing quite well. I'm not saying that's down to me, but um, but I'm fortunate to work with some some uh, some businesses that have that have embraced change. Fantastic. And where can people find out more about you and your work, Philip? Uh, so uh, my personal website website is philipgraves.net, uh, and my company website is shiftconsultancy dot co dot uk that's s h i f t consultancy dot co dot uk and i'm also an associate at a uh, big economics consultancy firm called frontier economics brilliant and if you were if you were stuck in a lift with the industry leaders what would be your parting message to them 
My parting message would be uh, you need to get a grip on consumer psychology and behavioral insight if you want to get a competitive advantage. Consumer behavior expert and author of the bestseller, Consumerology, Philip Graves, thank you for joining us. My pleasure.